Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. I know you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? I think you can in Europe. You can indeed be whelmed in Europe. Fact. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 58, 10 Things I Hate About You. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. I hope you're all continuing to stay safe and well. I unfortunately have a bit of a cold (laughs) right now, um, which I'm not sure if you can hear, but I'm a little bit bunged up at the moment. It is genuinely just a cold, it's nothing more. Um, I have been very religious with taking my temperature um, because uh, coronavirus is obviously still a real worry for pretty much everyone uh, in the world. But I hope that you guys are well, (laughs) like me, uh, who's uh, struggling a little bit today. Um, But uh, despite that, uh, whether this is your first episode of Verbal Diorama or your 58th episode listening, thank you for joining me for this episode because this episode is going to be really special for me because it's another jolly with the wonderful, gorgeous and very much missed Heath Ledger. Um, but before I go into that, um, I just kind of want to thank everyone for the overwhelmingly, or should that be whelmingly, actually, thinking of it, <laughs> positive response for the latest episode that I put out, which was Jurassic Park. That was only released three days ago, uh, but I do love to spoil you guys in late August, early September. So there's been a lot of episodes of Verbal Diorama coming out recently, but Jurassic Park was an episode that I put out on my birthday. Um, and it's just done so incredibly well. Uh, it quickly overtook X-Men in the download stakes. Um, and X-Men was released four days prior to that. So it's overtook X-Men completely. Um, and birthday episodes are somewhat of a tradition. Now, I guess you could call it a tradition, 
even though verbal diorama's not even been going for two years yet, but it, I'm going to call it a tradition. I have no idea how I'm going to top Jurassic Park next year, but I guess you'll find out next August. Um, but again, thank you so much for the amazing response. Um, I got so many lovely comments and messages. Um, and I, genuinely, I'm always so grateful for every single listen. So I really, really do appreciate whether you listen to Jurassic Park or whether you just listen to X-Men. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> or are you listening to this? It's, it's just, it blows my mind all the time. So thank you so much. Back to the topic at hand, because you'll remember if you listened to episode 44 of this podcast, which was on A Knight's Tale, that I mentioned that Heath Ledger would return. And back then, it was always going to be 10 Things I Heard About You. Um, so when I said Heath Ledger was going to return, I knew it would be 10 Things I Heard About You, because this is the Heath that I like to remember. The kind of cheeky bad boy Heath <laughs> and and this is really the role that made Hollywood sit up and take notice of this handsome Australian um, and Hollywood really did sit up and take notice um, so much so that the media attention on Heath Ledger reached ridiculous levels up towards the end of his life reading cast stories of his time on 10 things I hate about you and a knight's tale for that matter Heath Ledger was just a really really good guy working a job he enjoyed. He never wanted the fame or infamy. Um, and 10 Things I Hate About You is probably the purest of all of his roles. Um, and definitely his most memorable, uh, for me, despite not being the one that most cinema aficionados would immediately go to. Because the one that he, they would probably immediately go to is probably um, The Dark Knight. Um, but 10 Things I Hate About You is really special. While you're here, I'm going to tell you why. So, here's the trailer for 10 Things I Hate About You. There's a difference between like and love. Because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. Bianca Stratford is the most popular girl at Padua High. You're asking me out? I'm down. I've got the 411. And you are not going out and getting jiggy with some boy. I don't care how dope his ride is. Her sister, Kat is something else entirely. People perceive you as somewhat tempestuous. Heinous witch is the term used most often. The only thing they have in common... I am the only girl in school who's not dating. Oh, no, you're not. Your sister doesn't date. ...is one simple rule. Okay, you can date when she does. But she's a mutant. What if she never dates? And you'll never date. Oh, I like that. For Cameron... No one will go out with her. It's a problem. And what about him? I heard he ate a live duck once. So you two are going to help me tame the wild beast? Absolutely. Touchstone Pictures presents a story for every guy who's ever tried. You never give up, do you? Was that a yes? No. Well, then was that a no? No. Every girl who's ever hoped. This is not good. And anyone who's ever been taken completely by surprise. She kissed me. Where? In the car. Things I Hate About You. Pretty and popular Bianca Stratford, who has never had a date, is forbidden to date by her father until her older sister does. Tempestuous Cat Stratford, whose acerbic wit is matched only by her steadfast determination to alienate any guy who might be remotely interested in her, has no interest in dating or teen social situations. Bianca's desperation for romance turns into a convoluted scheme to match Kat with her male equivalent, a guy whose reputation is so infamous that Kat might rise to the challenge and find him worthy of her charms. 
Mayhem ensues when Patrick Verona, a young Australian with a mysterious past, is bribed by Bianca's wannabe boyfriend to woo and win Kat in order to clear the way for Bianca to begin dating. But despite Kat's best efforts, the handsome and charming Patrick starts to find a way to her affection. So I'm going to go through the cast. No surprise <laughs> who's in this movie, really. But um, uh, we have Julia Stiles as Kat Stratford. Heath Ledger, of course, as Patrick Verona. Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Cameron James. Larissa Olenek as Bianca Stratford. Larry Miller as Walter Stratford. Andrew Keegan as Joey Donner. David Crumholtz as Michael Ekman. Susan May Pratt as Mandela. Gabrielle Union as Chastity Church. Daryl Mitchell as Mr Morgan. And Alison Janney as Miss Perky. The screenplay was by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. You may remember those names from Legally Blonde. Uh, that's episode 21 of this podcast. And they really do seem to have their fingers purely on this kind of late 90s, early 2000s, great female heroine teen movie genre. Um, I don't even know if that's a genre, but if it is, they really do have their fingers on it because... Um, as proven by Legally Blonde and by 10 Things I Hate About You, they are really, really great at adapting other people's work. Um, and when I say that, it's because this movie, you may or may not know, is based on The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare. And 10 Things I Hate About You was directed by Gil Younger. So to start with 10 Things I Hate About You, we need to travel back to sometime around 1590, when William Shakespeare wrote the comedy about the courtship between Petruchio and Katharina and the suitors of her younger sister Bianca, the ideal bride, in William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. So Katharina remains unwilling and headstrong and Petruchio is required to tame her in a variety of ways, such as denying her food and drink, sleep and clothing until she becomes a compliant bride. It's abuse and brainwashing, really. Um, but their courtship starts, interestingly, with passion and Petruchio attracted to Katharina for her power. And Shakespeare usually has this ability to remain mostly relevant and relatable. And this is why his plays and texts remain uh, popular 400 plus years later. But it is safe to say that The Taming of the Shrew is widely seen as, well a little bit problematic and misogynistic. The fact that Petruchio has to psychologically torment Katharina until she becomes obedient, um, which is something in the 16th century women were supposed to be, um, is hardly something that modern audiences can relate to. And so to say this is loosely based on The Taming of the Shrew is accurate. It takes the main premise of The Taming of the Shrew, two sisters, one highly spirited, sarcastic social outsider, and the other considered perfect, pretty, and popular, but kind of easily puts this concept into a late 90s setting. 10 Things I Hate About You doesn't ride on the coattails of The Taming of the Shrew, but it doesn't hide its similarities either. The character names, for example, Cat, Bianca, Stratford, Patrick, Verona, are all linked to Shakespeare or his texts. The school uh, becomes Padua High School. Uh, Shakespeare is regularly quoted. Even the song covered by Letters to Cleo, Cruel to be Kind, is an adaptation of a Hamlet quote from Act 3, Scene 4. I must be cruel only to be kind. Thus bad begins and worse remains behind. The character Mandela, who's Kat's best friend, is infatuated with the bard. Um, the links to Shakespeare are almost brazen, but because the movie is so intrinsically set in the 90s with 90s clothes, 
music, hair, and a very typical of a 90s teen high school rom-com, you could be forgiven for not even attributing it to Shakespeare at all. So William Shakespeare is officially the most filmed author in any language, with 410 feature-length film and TV versions of his plays, and The Taming of the Shrew was first adapted in 1908 in a silent movie starring Florence Lawrence as Katharina and Arthur V. Johnson as Petruchio. The first sound adaptation starred real-life couple Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks in 1929, but the most famous adaptation was probably the 1967 Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton movie. Uh, At the time, they were also married. This was their marriage for the first time because they divorced in 1974, remarried in 1975 before divorcing again in 1976. Uh, It's also been adapted for Broadway in Kiss Me Kate, which was written by Bella and Samuel Spuak, with music and lyrics by Cole Porter, uh, which was his only show to run for more than a thousand Broadway performances. Kiss Me Kate started on Broadway in 1948 and was recently revived in 2019. The story of Kiss Me Kate is actually about the production of a musical version of The Taming of the Shrew and the conflict on and off stage between the show's director, producer and star, who also happens to be the director's ex-wife. The high school Shakespeare adaptations would continue with She's the Man, um, also written by McCullough and Smith, Get Over It and Oh, which would also star Julia Stiles and Andrew Keegan. Um, And there was a big teen movie explosion happening in the 90s. And young writers Kirsten Smith and Karen McCullough were inspired by Amy Heckling's take on Jane Austen's Emma in Clueless, which is episode 37 of this podcast, uh, if you're interested. They wrote a script. It was actually over long distance, so they would mail copies of the script to each other uh, for the movie that would become 10 Things I Hate About You. The movie itself was titled after a diary entry that Karen McCullough had made about a high school boyfriend named Anthony. And let's be honest, high school boyfriends are usually complete jerks. Uh, They're usually more Joey Donners than Patrick Verona's. Um, But unusually, their script was greenlit six months after being optioned, which was unheard of at the time for first-time writers. Producer Andrew Lazar was very keen to get the movie shot and released in quick succession. And so a casting search went out and they saw hundreds of actors. Halfway through this process, they found Julia Stiles. This was despite Larissa Olenek, who was probably one of the biggest names in the cast at the time, thanks to her Nickelodeon show The Secret Life of Alex Mack, which made her a teen star. Um, Larissa Olenek wanted the role of Kat. Eliza Dushku, who was fresh off her guest turn in Buffy the Vampire Slayer as Faith, was also considered for Kat, as was Katie Holmes, who the production team were very, very interested in, but who bagged Dawson's Creek at the same time instead, so she went off to make Dawson's Creek. Also in the running for Cat was Kate Hudson until her iconic mum, Goldie Horn, stepped in because Goldie Horn didn't like the script. Uh, Goldie Horn did, however, love the script for Almost Famous, which her daughter would famously star in, and it would then net the then 21 year old Kate Hudson an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe win. So let's not be too sad for Kate Hudson. Uh, Andrew Lazar and casting director Marcia Ross kept coming back to Julia Stiles, though. But the male lead opposite her was going to really make or break this movie. And while heartthrobs like Ashton Kutcher and Josh Hartnett were in the running, young Australian Heath Ledger wowed the casting team with his charisma and magnetism. Because the character of Patrick needed to be masculine, sweet, charming, and be able to convincingly be this 
mysterious bad boy of Padua High, as well as, convincingly, the real Patrick, someone who was sweet, sensitive and sexy. It was a complicated role and they needed a complicated actor. And Heath Ledger's audition obviously went well. He actually dressed up in a white suit and black shirt and they were impressed that he could even pull it off. Uh, Gil Younger stated that he could feel Heath's raw sexuality uh, during that audition. And they attempted a bit of improv, which Ledger thought that he'd blown. But Younger knew that he had to have Heath Ledger in his movie. And so the inevitable screen test with Julia Stiles happened and that blew everyone away with their chemistry. And this was when Heath Ledger bagged his first Hollywood rule kind of on the spot. Gil Younger famously said of the audition, I have never wanted to sleep with a man, but if I had to sleep with a man, that would be the man. Please cast him immediately. And life imitated art for Heath Ledger, who arrived on set a week after filming commenced, and the rest of the cast had only heard stories about him from the producers. Nothing quite as serious as having a liver removed or spending a year in prison, but rumours of his charisma and smile preceded him. Uh, When he eventually joined the production, he just fitted in with the rest of the cast and their friend groups immediately. And by all accounts, the cast really, really bonded. And this is something that every time... Well, I've said every time, I've only done it twice. But on both movies that I've done featuring Heath Ledger, which is obviously this and A Knight's Tale, the main thing that always comes out of the production is how much the cast bonded and how much everyone got on with Heath Ledger and the stories that people say about him. I don't think it's just hyperbole. I think it is genuine. He was just a genuine nice guy and people just really loved him. Um, And I think it's always nice to know that a movie starring a person that you really love and admire actually is a good person in real life. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was known for his role in Third Rock from the Sun, uh, where he would co-star with Larissa Elanik. And he admitted he didn't actually want to do teen movies. He actually wanted to do more serious stuff. Uh, He actually ended up auditioning for Michael. Uh, David Crumholtz auditioned for Cameron and both ended up with the other's choice roles. David Crumholtz had to teach Andrew Keegan to draw as Miss Perky might say, a quivering member, uh, Andrew Keegan. Um, Well, he ended up running a new age spiritual community. uh, In layman's terms, you might call it a cult, which got closed down in 2017. So I'm not going to be dwelling on Andrew Keegan. Larissa Olenek obviously didn't end up with the role of Kat, but her life would also imitate art in a way, as Olenek attended and graduated from Kat Stratford's chosen college, Sarah Lawrence. And the eternally youthful Gabrielle Union, she was 27 while making this movie, um, which just blows my mind because she still looks incredible today. And also, Gabrielle Union would go on to star in another adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, opposite LL Cool J, in 2003's Deliver Us From Eva, where she played Eva, who was the Katerina of that particular adaptation. It's worth noting too that in my episode on Galaxy Quest, uh, guest host Andy and I discussed how young the actor Daryl Mitchell, who played Tommy Webber slash Lieutenant Laredo, looked. And this movie came out the same year. And now, bizarrely, he looks his age. And it's weird. I mean, maybe it's because he's a teacher and a cool teacher at that. And obviously in Galaxy Quest, he was playing a character who started out as a young boy. Um, But it's bizarre that Daryl Mitchell can look different ages in different movies that came out the same year. But anyway, Daryl Mitchell was 34 in 1999. So him and Gabrielle Union 
blow my mind in this movie. Uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, unlike most movies, was shot entirely on location in the Seattle and Tacoma area. The opening credits overlooking Kerry Park and Queen Anne Hill. The Stratford family home on the corner of North Junets and North 28th Street was recently sold for $1.54 million. That was used for interior and exterior shots, as well as Stadium High School in Tacoma for interior and exterior scenes at the school. Uh, Stadium High School was originally designed as a hotel and that's why it looks so grand. Lake Union was used for the pedal boat scenes and the Paramount Theatre for the prom entrance scenes, but the actual prom itself was filmed at Century Ballroom. The most famous scene in the movie is probably Patrick's serenade of Cat at the Padua High School Stadium. So it was filmed at Stadium High School's stadium, obviously, and it was originally conceived for Heath Ledger to sing I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family, which was previously used in Screen 2, and that changed to the Divinals I Touch Myself, which had already been used in Austin Powers, and Heath Ledger didn't think that either of them really worked, especially I Touch Myself, <laughs> which is quite risque, actually, for a teen movie, and so he actually insisted on Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons Can't Take My Eyes Off You. The marching band wasn't the marching band from Stadium High School, because they didn't have a marching band, but neighbouring Lincoln High School did. Uh, the band member Patrick Pays was the real leader of the Lincoln High School marching band. And the whole scene came from the mind of Heath Ledger, which makes it so much more endearing and interesting. Heath chose his own outfit specifically for the scene. He wanted a very precise look. He also did his own choreography, which to be fair, it's not really much choreography. And the reason the security guards look so out of breath is because they were, because Heath Ledger just kept running rings around them. You'll notice in the long shot, as the kind of camera pans away, that one of them has just given up chasing him around. That scene particularly is called out a bit in recent years for showing Patrick Verona's creepiness and that he basically stalks Cat throughout the movie in a trope called stalking is love. But to coin a phrase from another McCullough Smith movie, I object. And this is the reason why. Because whilst Patrick initially is only pursuing Kat because he's being paid to date her, he actually very quickly becomes interested in her as a person. It's not a case, like in the original text, that he wants to tame her, because he as a person is introverted. No one knows who the real Patrick is, other than Patrick himself. He initially perseveres because he's getting something for it, but his respect and admiration for her beliefs and her passions is what changes that. He only ups the money to annoy Joey Donner. He doesn't actually use the money for himself. But importantly, Patrick learns to open up to Kat, despite her insistence that she's not interested. And by doing so and being authentic, she starts to open up to him, which leads to Bogey Lowenstein's party. And the tabletop dance to hypnotise by Biggie Smalls, we've all been there, all of us. Anyone who says they didn't, is a liar. <laughs> we didn't need Paula Abdul's choreography either, Julia, for that matter, but then we also didn't get Save the Last Dance from it either. The fact that Patrick doesn't kiss her in the car shows how much he genuinely likes her and doesn't want to take advantage of a drunk girl. She doesn't see that, of course, but us the viewer does, and it just makes us love Patrick that little bit more, because his stalking, and I use that in inverted commas because I really don't like that phrase, but it isn't stalking. It's him attempting to apologise to her in a way that she'll listen to. But because she's embarrassed by his rejection, uh, she doesn't want to know. The important thing to note, though, is 
No one else knows, uh, unlike other teen rom-coms who would embarrass the girl publicly to get this guy to do a grand gesture publicly to win her back. Kat's embarrassment is between her and Patrick. And so Patrick's grand gesture is not targeted at Kat, according to anyone else in the school. To the onlookers in the field, he's just bad boy Patrick doing something crazy because that's his reputation. The only person who truly gets the gesture is Kat. And that's when she realises he is sorry. He does like her and he is willing to go to detention for her. And similarly, she's also willing to get him out of detention. Um, And maybe it's not politically correct to flash your teacher, but it works. I hasten to add that although... (laughs) Although the tabletop dancing to Hypnotised by Biggie Smalls was something where we've all been, flashing a teacher is not somewhere that I've personally been. Basically, what I'm trying to say, it's not the taming of the shrew Cat Stratford. It's more the taming of the rebel Patrick Verona. Because Cat is never tamed. She remains steadfast with her beliefs. She just appreciates that in order to show she loves her sister, she needs to be less strict. She needs to let Bianca make her mistakes, which is hard, especially when you're an older sister. Trust me, I know this. I made enough mistakes to not want my sister to repeat them. But the most important thing wasn't to stop my sister or to lecture her, but to be her sister when she needed me to be. And so I relate to Kat. I relate to Kat on so many levels, but mainly because I was the social outcast sister with the popular younger sister. And I know my sister's probably listening because I know she loves this movie too. And I know she knows I'm the cat and she's the Bianca. But I digress. Kat is depicted as the difficult woman, the outspoken feminist, the opinionated shrew. She subverts the rom-com trope of the ugly girl who becomes pretty or the serious girl who becomes fun. Kat is a complicated teenager with nuance and it's rare we see depictions of complicated women, women with trauma, women with feminist ideals, but also women with wit and charm, but a woman who has her own autonomy, but let alone in a teen movie. Um, In this world and in the real world, being anything less than a submissive woman demonises you. It's the way that society is cultivated to see women with opinions as difficult. That's something that hasn't changed in the 20 years, really, since this movie. The world is still misogynistic in that respect. Kat's anger towards someone like Joey Donner is justified. The fact that even her teacher agrees that he deserves a beatdown might not be politically correct terminology for a teaching professional, but his behaviour is awful. Teach your sons to not treat women like that. But we should also... Sorry, I'm going off on one now. (laughs) But we should also teach our daughters to not see the societal trope of difficult women either. In the movie, Kat and Bianca are at loggerheads because they're unwilling to either understand each other or back off. But in the end, both learn to actually support, appreciate and understand their sister's needs and wants and also to understand their privilege. Kat's fully realised as a person and the reason she finds love with Patrick isn't because she submits to him or changes for him because if anything, he actually changes for her. But she finds her equal, someone who doesn't want to stifle her dreams, someone who understands her independence and respects her drive and ambition to be more than who she is. She's beyond being manipulated by a boy because Joey Donner's been there, done that. She's learned from that mistake. But the one thing she does learn from Patrick is to be vulnerable. And when you're hurting, showing vulnerability is the hardest thing to do. This makes the poem scene even more effective because 
Julia Stiles really leaned into that vulnerability to do that in one take and just let the emotion run over her. Crying wasn't in the script. It was just something that she just did. She just felt the emotion at that time. It made the scene authentic and it really shows Kat's vulnerability in public of her own choosing in that she's not coerced or forced or made to do it by some gesture by a boy and the fact that Patrick doesn't embrace her or cry or get visibly emotional isn't an issue either because Heath Ledger even said that the scene wasn't about Patrick it was about Kat and it was about her emotions and for him to get involved would take it away from Kat and therefore take it away from Julia Stiles. The fact that Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles reportedly dated throughout production is really not surprising because their chemistry is off the charts I mean, you can probably tell I love this movie. Everything about this movie calls to me, like the ocean calls to Moana. I really do think that this movie is so exceptionally special. Um, And it's really because I feel like I can relate so much to it. Because there's a difference between being tamed by society's expectations and your own expectations. And as that girl who listened to rock music and was the weirdo social outcast and still kind of proudly is, actually, 10 Things I Hate About You stands head and shoulders above other teen rom-coms like She's All That or Drive Me Crazy. And I think it's really easy to see teen movies as inconsequential or vapid. But they're not. A really great teen movie can really encapsulate what it feels like to be a teenager It doesn't even necessarily have to be at the time you were a teenager because I was a teenager in the 90s. So I really do understand that era. And maybe that is why I feel so much more endeared to Kat as a character and why she means so much to me as a person. You know, she's to me, she's not a character in a movie. She feels like a person because I see myself in her because I was that difficult girl as well. Um, And in many respects, I still am. You know, I still have the same beliefs that Kat has. In many ways, my beliefs have only grown over the years because as you get older, I think you feel stronger and you feel feel more able to vocalise how you feel. You don't feel constrained by society's expectations of you because you reach a point where you just think, well, screw that. (laughs) To to coin a phrase from Galaxy Quest, it does not contain the F word, but screw that. I have my beliefs. I I fight for what I think is right. And so does Kat. And that makes this movie the complete opposite of inconsequential or vapid. Discounting a movie just because it's a teen movie or a teen comedy or a high school comedy, you discount it at your peril. I feel very sorry for anyone who's not really appreciated 10 Things I Hate About You. I've had a couple of rants. I'm very sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. (laughs) I'm not sorry at all. Um, But I want to move on to something that I like to do called the obligatory Keanu reference. And how do I link Keanu Reeves to a teen movie? Uh, Well turns out reasonably easily uh, because at the time Keanu was Neo in The Matrix and I did an episode on that too that's number 14 but as it turns out there's a surprising link between Keanu Reeves and 10 Things I Hate About You and it's not that he's the Patrick Verona of my dreams although that's not untrue because The Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You actually came out on the same day in the US that was on the 31st of March 1999 
The Matrix obviously ruled supreme at the box office that week and continued to rule for some time, but 10 Things I Hate About You came in at a respectable second behind The Matrix that first week. And having Keanu at number one and Heath at number two is basically the same order of my Hollywood hunks rank that I've got going on at the moment. So I think that kind of says it all, really. So music-wise, obviously the music in 10 Things I Hate About You is so very set in the 90s. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way um, because I was a big fan of 90s girl rock music. And Letters to Cleo were the kind of main prominent, so much so you could call them the movie band. And they performed two covers. um, So covers of Cheap Tricks, I Want You to Want Me and Nick Lowe's Cruel to Be Kind. Uh, Also featured on the soundtrack was Save Ferris, who were the prom band. Um, And also bands like Madness and the Cardigans. Featured in the movie, but not on the soundtrack, were prominent 90s French electronic band Air with Sexy Boy. And at one point in the 90s, Sexy Boy was everywhere. So it remains very set in the 90s to have Sexy Boy in the movie. Coincidentally, Letters to Cleo perform on the Stadium High School roof at the end of the movie. Although how they got onto the roof is a mystery to Stadium High alumni. Ex-student Yasmin Wafai wrote for the Seattle Times and says, I always thought Letters to Cleo's rooftop performance of I Want You to Want Me during the final scene was awesome. I want to know how they got their equipment up there because I believe the only way to get there is to climb a ladder. And if you look at the scene, you'll notice there's no door. Uh, It's literally just the top of a roof and it's a small area as well. They are really cramped onto this roof. Uh, They must have been petrified. Letters to Cleo, uh, nor the production itself actually had permission to shoot that scene. Disney stated that the cost couldn't be justified, but director Gil Younger was basically in a helicopter and just said, let's film it. The band were surrounded by chicken wire. That was the only thing that was stopping them from plummeting to their deaths. They did two takes, and despite it costing half a million dollars just for that one shot, it stayed in the movie and it ended up becoming iconic. As I mentioned previously, the movie was released on the 31st of March 1999 against The Matrix, um, but it still ended up making a decent $463.5 million against a $63 million budget. It's actually the 10th highest grossing teen romance movie ever made. Sequels wise, um, many people are aware that there was a TV adaptation of 10 Things I Hate About You, which premiered on ABC Family in the US in 2009. It had one season and 20 episodes, 12 of which were directed by Gil Younger before its cancellation. The series followed a new cast, including Lindsay Shaw as Kat and Megan Martin as Bianca, but with Larry Miller reprising his role as Walter Stratford. There was talk of 11 things I hate about you, uh, but that obviously never happened. Not many people, however, are aware of a movie sequel to 10 Things I Hate About You, and that's because it never actually got finished. It was called 10 Things I Hate About Life. It was written and directed by Gil Younger and starred Evan Rachel Wood, Thomas McDonnell and Billy Campbell. It was independent of 10 Things I Hate About You because it was new characters and was basically about two people who meet each other while they are attempting to commit suicide, Um, which is very much the opposite of a teen movie plot. But shooting commenced in 2012 and in February 2013, producer Gary Smith stepped down from his position as the CEO of Intandem Films and the filming for 10 Things I Hate About Life was put on hold. Intandem, however, claimed the delay came from Evan Rachel Wood's pregnancy 
and they committed to filming returning that September. Nothing would happen uh, at all uh, until Variety reported that Evan Rachel Wood was being sued for $30 million by the producers of 10 Things I Hate About Life for allegedly refusing to continue on the movie, which was refuted by her lawyers who claimed their client had actually never been paid for the work that she had completed. 10 Things I Hate About Life, therefore, seems to be relegated to that special place for unloved movies, development hell, and it's very likely that it will never, ever see the light of day. Over to social media, because one thing that I like to do is I like to let people know what I'm covering next, and I like to ask them, what are their thoughts about this movie? And um, rather unsurprisingly, people love 10 Things I Hate About You. So first of all, we'll go over to Twitter, at BLC Agnew said, A truly delightful update of an iconic Shakespeare comedy that is not only a showcase for exciting young acting talent, but uses its modern setting to legitimately improve, yeah, I said it, on its source material. I would absolutely agree. It is 100% a legitimate improvement on The Taming of the Shrew. Genuinely. Uh, And as much as I will never say anything bad about William Shakespeare, because he is an icon, The Taming of the Shrew is incredibly problematic and I think the fact that 10 Things I Hate About You is not or at least in my eyes is not it is a complete improvement in every regard at OSW Podcast 1 said one of my favourite teen movies ever we plan to re-review this one soon too this and Clueless and Fantastic Quit Twists on Classic Lit at Chance Whitmore 5 said use some clips of this movie when teaching Shakespeare amazing cast at This Film Is Lit, said, One of my favourites ever. I remember watching it in middle school sleepovers with the volume on low because our parents would have been scandalised by it. At AFC Film Geek, said, Great cast, great soundtrack, great enjoyable movie. At Need Three Mugs, said, I agree, a really good movie. So glad it's on Disney+. And at Stuck On Arrakis, said, Gasp, I have to re-watch it. And it is on Disney+. Plus. Um, I do have it on DVD, but for the purposes of this podcast... I actually watched it on Disney Plus uh, because it is a touchstone movie. So therefore it is a Disney movie. And if you have Disney Plus, you should absolutely watch this. And because it's called 10 Things I Hate About You, if you sort the films on Disney Plus by A to Z, it is number one on the list. So you've got no excuse. Can't say you can't find it on the list because it's number one. Right, moving over to Instagram, at FWMPod said, I hope I'm not too late. This film has so much meaning for me. The year it came out, I was doing Taming of the Shrew in an elementary school production and seeing the story brought to life in a modern setting with amazing actors was so special. I love Aniston Janney in this and Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't get enough credit for his performance either. Can't wait for this episode. I kind of haven't really mentioned Alison Janney at all, apart from listing her in the cast, but Alison Janney... It's more of an extended cameo, really. Um, But she is so great. She has some of the best lines. She's basically writing erotica as well as being the guidance counsellor. And she is just standout brilliant in this movie. Um, In fact, although we don't see many of the teaching staff, um, she stands out and Daryl Mitchell stands out as just being really, really great. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I don't think Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets enough credit for his career full stop. I think he's got incredible range. Um, Everything that I've seen him in is completely different to anything else that he's ever been in. Um, And 
I will make a point of doing some more Joseph Gordon-Levitt roles for the podcast because I really do think he is incredibly talented. Um, and this goes to show that he can do comedy. He can do teen comedy. Uh, as much as he probably didn't want to, he can do it. And finally, on Facebook, we have friend of the pod, Laurel, and she says, My absolute fave growing up. It's fun looking back, having a lot more experience with Shakespeare and the intensely problematic mess that is the taming of the shrew. But Cat was an early feminist role model for me in as much as a 90s teen comedy can deliver, prepping me to be as combative as possible when reading Hemingway in high school. The soundtrack was always in my rotation, Letters to Cleo forever, and what can I say, it's when I fell in love with Heath Ledger. And... Really, it's when everyone fell in love with Heath Ledger. I did a little kind of obituary for Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, and I feel like I don't want to do that again. But I do want to say that Heath Ledger's death and seeing him in roles like this, where he's so full of joy and charisma, uh, see also A Knight's Tale, where he's brilliant, it always feels so bittersweet because less than 10 years after Patrick Verona in 2008, Heath Ledger would pass away of an accidental drug overdose, leaving behind a two-year-old daughter. And that will never not hit me like a ton of bricks. It will never not be sad. Because like in A Knight's Tale, this is the Heath Ledger I like to watch. And I do. Uh, I watch this movie as often as possible. Um, I watch this movie more than anything else he's ever been in. Because it's comfort food. It reminds me of me. It reminds me of being cat, of transitioning between being a child and an adult. And Heath Ledger embodies everything, for me, the perfect guy should be. Uh, respectful, honest, sincere, fun, supportive, charismatic, really, really ridiculously good looking and willing to take you paintballing. Seriously, Keanu, if you're listening, let's go paintballing. We will have a blast. Don't dismiss 10 Things I Hate About You at all. There are a million things to love about it and a million reasons to miss Heath Ledger. You screwed up, Heath. You never disappointed me. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on 10 things I hate about you. If you do like this episode or any of my episodes, um, if you could take a moment to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, that would be amazing. Um, and thank you to those who have recently given me some wonderful five-star ratings. Um, I'm always really touched by it and it genuinely is the best way to show that you love what a podcast does. Or alternatively, if you have done that, please tell a friend um, about Verbal Diorama and Let's get more people listening to me ranting about why he Ledger the loveliest, because he really is. As I have over 50 episodes, um, I'm no longer listing them all at the end of episodes that I'm doing. But if you like this episode on 10 Things I Hate About You, you might also like my episodes on... So we've got episode 21, Legally Blonde, because obviously that was also written by McCullough and Smith, and it is fantastic. Episode 37, Clueless. Clueless and 10 Things I Heard About You are peerless, as far as I'm concerned. Episode 44, A Knight's Tale, for obvious reasons. If you love Heath Ledger, you will love A Knight's Tale completely. And also, a bit of a curveball, but I'm going to throw it in there. Episode 51, Down With Love. Um, and that is basically purely for the feminine mystique. Because Patrick Verona has lost his copy of The Feminine Mystique. Um, but I talk about The Feminine Mystique in Down With Love. It's very, very similar in many respects. But it's kind of set in the 60s. So the politics 
are a little bit different, but it's still a hell of a lot of fun and highly, highly, highly underrated. Give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Do you think that I got it correct? Do you think that I missed anything? Um, Let me know. So I'm going to be really, really honest with you guys when I talk about the next episode, because I could have not told the truth uh, and you would have been none the wiser. But I like to be as upfront as possible on this podcast. So the next episode is different to what it was meant to be. And I want to explain why. Months ago, because I'm the weirdo who schedules months in advance, I planned to do my first full episode within the MCU. Although my second episode was Captain Marvel, I don't consider it a full verbal diorama episode. It's more of a bonus. So when thinking about what I wanted to do first, when considering the MCU and how big it is, there was really only one choice. Um, Because I wanted something legacy-defining, culturally defining and MCU defining and I chose Black Panther. Last weekend we all heard the awful news on the sudden death of Chadwick Boseman and the realisation he'd been battling colon cancer for four years. All of this while performing in these genre defining roles he'd been facing a personal and private battle with this deadly disease. I'll be honest his death affected me immensely. It felt like I felt when I heard Heath Ledger had died. Just complete shock and sadness that a wonderful talent had been taken from us all so quickly and so cruelly. I feel like as much as I want to pay tribute to him by covering Black Panther, now is not the time. My deepest sympathies remain with his family and friends and colleagues and fans. The world is mourning this incredible man and so I've taken the decision to move Black Panther to later on in this year out of respect for him and his loved ones and to give Black Panther and the irreplaceable Chadwick Boseman the tribute he deserves. And I wanted to be honest about that because I feel an overwhelming sense of sadness. Um, But it's not for the fact that I can't cover Black Panther or that I feel that I can't cover Black Panther it's just a pure sadness for what we've lost and what he gave us um, because his legacy is going to live on forever Um, he is immortalised in history um, but still I don't feel like now is the time to talk about Black Panther we need to grieve and we need to move on um And so I'm hoping that later on in the year will be the right time because I really, really do want to talk about Black Panther um, just as much as I did before, maybe even more so now. Um, But I wanted to be honest about it. Um, I didn't want to make a big deal out of it on social media. I had to let patrons know because patrons know the schedule in advance. And so I did let patrons know before Um, and then I had to make a decision, well, what am I going to do instead? Um, and it was really difficult actually to find something to replace Black Panther. And so I went for something completely different in every respect because nothing else seemed to work. Honestly, it's no less of a doozy because it's a movie that I really, really love for so many reasons, but here's two. Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Um, The next episode is on the brilliantly devious and hilarious black comedy, Death Becomes Her. 
and I hope you'll join me for that. Um, and I hope you're not too disappointed that I'm not covering Black Panther, uh, but I hope you understand the reasons why. So, as I said, the next episode will be on Death Becomes Her, uh, and now a warning. Nah, not really. I just always wanted to say that. You can find any of my other 57 episodes in your podcast app of choice to stream or download. And if you want to follow me on social media, on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, I am at Verbal Diorama. Um, you can sign up to support the show if you wish at patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. Uh, you get access to the upcoming schedule, as I mentioned. You also get shout outs and you get episodes early uh, apart from Jurassic Park and 10 Things I Hate About You uh, because the timescales on them were just far too difficult to do that. Um, but a massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast, Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike and Griff. There are 10 things that I love about all of you, but I don't have time to list them all, sorry. And a little bit of announcement, Verbal Diorama now has merchandise, so you can check out my merch store at teespring.com slash store slash Verbal Diorama, and you can buy t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and tote bags uh, in two designs with more to come. And for the month of September 2020 only, you can get 15% of all items with promo code VD15OFF, so that's VD15OFF. If you want to get in touch, you can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can message me over on my website, verbaldiorama.com, uh, or you can pop over to Film Stories. You can check out the magazine. You can check out the articles. There is a Kickstarter going on at the moment to raise funds for the magazine to continue into next year. Please look into supporting it if you can. I know that Simon has just put an immense amount of work into this magazine. It would really, really be of massive help if you could help this Kickstarter. So please go over to Film Stories, click on the link about the Kickstarter, and if you can help, please do. That would be wonderful. And finally... You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you You'd be like heaven to touch I wanna hold you so much at long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you